Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Habakkuk 3, verse 17. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds' feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. What a triumphant conclusion these words are to Habakkuk's experience in this little three-chapter prophecy. The prophet has moved from perplexity in chapter 1 to praise in chapter 3. He's moved from worry to worship, from the valley to the mountaintop. His faith has overcome his fears. His faith has been tried, but now it's triumphant. His circumstances haven't changed, but Habakkuk has changed. I want you to notice two little words in the reading, and they're easily overlooked. They're the words, although and yet. You know, it's not the big words of the Bible that give people the most trouble. It's the common little words that we tend to overlook. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, there shall be no fruit in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, the fields shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls, yet, although this is true, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Now this kind of language has not been Habakkuk's tune from the beginning. In fact, the prophet's really been struggling. He's had what one writer called these inward trials. Have you ever had any of those? Or as the poet called it, soul struggles. Lord, help me the struggles of the soul to bear. Perhaps you're here this morning and you know the reality of soul struggles. Your heart is burdened. You're tied in knots on the inside. And Habakkuk has been in that frame for the last couple of chapters. His name, if you remember, means the wrestler. And he has been grappling and wrestling with various issues. But his faith has gone through the trial of fire, and now it has emerged as pure gold. It's triumphant. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7 says, The trial of your faith may be more precious than gold that perisheth. Though it be tried with fire, it might be found under the praise, honor, and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Faith is put to the test. Our trust in God is often proven to be true, and in the fire of trial, it becomes stronger. It becomes more mature. You know, it's in the trials and difficulties of my life that I've learned the most valuable lessons that I've ever learned. Like the story of the butterfly that was trying to emerge from its cocoon, and the 
little boy felt so sorry for it as he watched it struggle to try to break free from the confines of the cocoon. So he decided he would help it. And he tore the cocoon open to give it greater freedom. And the butterfly certainly was able to emerge sooner than it would have, but yet it stayed on the ground. And it never did fly, and it soon dried up and died. You see, the butterfly needed the trial. It needed the stress in order to pump fluids through its wings to get stronger so that it could rise above the earth. My beloved, it's our trials that strengthen us. It's our troubles that make us more mature if we improve upon them. Trouble can either make you bitter or better, depending on how you react to it. Well, Habakkuk's faith has been tried, but it now has come forth as gold. James chapter 1 verse 12 says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation or trial, for when he is tried, he shall receive a crown of life. The blessed man who endures it, who capitalizes on the experience, who learns the lesson that God intends to teach, will be crowned with a crown which is life. That is, he will be given an abundance of blessing. 1 John 5, 4 says, This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Here's Habakkuk's victory in the last three verses of this little prophecy. When he confesses, Although every staple around me fails and falters, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. I want you to notice four R words. First, faith's reality. Secondly, faith's regardless, quote unquote. Third, faith's resolve. And finally, faith's result. First, look at verse 17, and we see faith's reality. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, although there shall be no fruit in the vines, The labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. Now, language like this may sound strange to those of us who live after the Industrial Revolution, in the Technological Revolution, who live in a world of microchips and circuit boards. But yet, we need to remember that Bible lands were agrarian cultures. The land of Israel was an agricultural society. And they depended upon these staples. They grew figs, they grew grapes, they grew olives, they grew grain, they had sheep, and they had cattle. But the prophet conceives of a time, he describes a condition of abject desolation, a time when all of the staples of that society would fail and falter, although the fig tree shall not blossom. What's going to happen if the fig tree doesn't put on any blooms, well, it won't produce any fruit. So although the fig tree does not blossom, you know, farmers that depended on figs to make a living would be very upset if their fig trees did not bloom that year. That meant there would be no harvest. He says, although the fig tree shall not blossom, and there shall be no fruit in the vines, the grapes will fail, and the labor of the olive shall fail. That is, the olive trees will cast their fruit before the fruit is ripe. And the fields shall yield no meat. You remember when Boaz and Ruth were gleaning 
in the fields, that is, they were gathering the harvest, the grain from which they made bread. He says, the fields are barren this year. Now, this describes a desperate and desolate situation. And then he says, further than that, not only do the crops fail, but the sheep die. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. The cattle have disappeared. Now, what he's saying in modern vernacular is this. Although the stock market crashes and the grocery store shelves are empty and the electrical grid goes down and the dollar loses its value, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. What he's doing in this verse is anticipating the prospect of Babylonian invasion. God has said, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians are coming in. And when they come in, they're going to sack Jerusalem and pillage the land. He says, although this happens, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Now, we're talking about faith's reality. Faith deals in reality. Faith is not an escape to fantasy land. It's not a little bit of pixie dust. It's not pie in the sky by and by. Faith is not an illusion but it's believing the word of God. You know, faith is not just a let's bury our head in the sand like the ostrich and pretend that problems don't exist. That's not biblical faith at all. Faith deals in reality. It says, although this happens. You see, it admits that problems are present. Sometimes the secularist ridicules the Christian because he says that Christians believe in superstition. They're dealing with myths and legends and fairy tales like Cinderella and Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Alice in Wonderland. I want to tell you, my beloved, biblical faith is an anchor for the soul. You know, an anchor doesn't just float in midair. It finds something solid to fasten to. Biblical faith deals in reality. Listen to Jesus in John 16, 33. These things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Notice how realistic that is. In the world, Jesus says, you shall have tribulation. My friends, if I stood before you today and said that God will make you rich and you will have perfect health and you'll never have any problems, I think that most of you who live in the real world would know that that's not true. You see, people who live in a real world know that there are problems in life. We have relationship problems. We have financial difficulties. We have health concerns. We have job stresses. We have problems. Man is born into trouble. As the sparks fly up are just as inevitable as sparks from a bonfire ascend, so my friends, trouble is inevitable in life. This is reality. Faith deals in reality. It says, although the fig tree, Habakkuk doesn't say, I'm just going to pretend that everything's rosy, rosy, all is well. There are no problems. He doesn't do that, does he? He says, problems are coming and I know it. But in spite of it, you see, faith's reality says, although, I want to ask you this morning, what if every personal comfort in your life was taken away? What if every friend abandoned you, your health failed, your money ran out, and there was no prospect of earning a living or finding a place to live? What if your situation was that desperate? That's 
the scene the prophet is describing in our text. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, there shall be no fruit in the vines, the labor of the olives shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. He's describing complete economic collapse. If the dollar failed and the electrical grid went down and you couldn't access information on your cell phone and you couldn't buy gasoline to drive yourself somewhere and the grocery store shelves were empty, you say, Brother Mike, none of that will ever happen. Well, I once thought that it wouldn't, but you know, uh, we've tasted enough of the stresses in the past few years to where I say it's possible. Where the grocery store shelves are empty, where gas is uh, scarce or the prices are such that no one can afford them, where the dollar fluctuates, where there have been challenges to the electrical grid. If, you know, if it really got down to brass tacks, I mean, where the rubber meets the road, if, if everything around you that you think is an essential in life failed and faltered, could you survive? I know that's a challenging question. And I don't know that any of us would know how to answer it just right, but faith deals in reality. You see, our trust in God today is not just something that we escape from the real world in order to pretend for a little while on Sunday mornings. Our faith in God is real, and it addresses every area and dimension of our lives. Faith's reality. I want you to notice now faith's quote-unquote regardless he says, although this happens, that's realistic, yet, regardless, in spite of it, yet. Yet is one of the great words of the Bible. It's like the word but or nevertheless. Have you ever noticed in Ephesians 2.4, after describing man's condition by nature, he says, we were children of wrath even as others, but... God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Aren't you glad there's a but God? You see, my friends, our condition is deplorable. We're in a pathetic situation by nature. We are, if you please, hell-deserving and hell-bound. If there wasn't a but God, if God didn't intervene and change the situation, there would be no hope for any of us. We'd be done for. Acts 13 says, when man had done his worst to Jesus, they took him down from the cross and buried him in a tomb. I'm so glad there's not a period there and okay, let's go home. Jesus died on a cross and he was put in the grave. Let's go home. The next verse says, but God raised him from the dead. Don't you love the little expression, but God? How about nevertheless? You see, the little words. Now, you say nevertheless is not a little word. Well, I mean, it's common it's one of those words you just sort of skip over, nevertheless. Second Timothy chapter 2 says that Hymenius and Philetus have preached that the resurrection is past already and they've overthrown the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. You see, these words take a river that's going in this direction and they make it take a hard right turn, a 90 degree turn. You see, by nature, we're dead in sins, but God who's rich in mercy, saves us by his grace. Man did his worst in crucifying Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. Hymenius and Philetus preached false doctrine and they influenced some people to believe a lie. Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. Don't you love that? 
Praise God for the but gods and the neverthelesses. And praise God for the yets. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, there shall be no fruit in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail. The field shall yield to no meat. The flock will be cut off from the fold and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet, what a word of faith. Reminds me of Judges 8, 4, when Gideon's army had been pursuing the enemy and they crossed a little brook and it says they were faint yet pursuing. Although they felt like stopping and quitting, they were faint. They were discouraged, they were weary, they were fatigued, yet they kept pursuing. That's the word of faith. How about Job 13, 15? Job says after he's lost his health, lost his family, his wife told him to curse God and die. His friends have accused him of committing some secret sin that he needed to confess and come clean with. Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Don't you love that? Though he slay me, although God turns against me and never blesses me again, I will not change my commitment to trust in him. Though he slay me. My beloved, what if God never blessed you again? What if you never had a happy day in the future? What if all of your best days were behind you and there were no daily mercies? There were no new serendipitous moments. There was no new sunshine. He says, what if the clouds were to hang low for the rest of your life and the sun never shone again? Job says, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Or how about Jonah? Jonah 2.4. Jonah says, as he talks about going down to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea in the whale's belly, he said, the seaweed wrapped around my head. I can just imagine hell. You know, if you're claustrophobic like I am, to have seaweed in your face and wrapping around your head, and that would be, well, he calls it hell. I was in the belly of hell. And Jonah describes exploring the depths of the ocean that he didn't even know existed on the top side, you know. There's a, an entire... New world beneath the water, you know. Jonah says, I went down to the depths of the ocean. And as he describes the pain and suffering of those cramped quarters in the whale's belly as the whale tried to digest Jonah as his evening meal, Jonah says, I said, I am cast out of thy sight. Yet, once more, I will look toward thy holy temple. You see, Jonah said, my situation's hopeless. I'm cast out of thy sight. I'm so far down that God can't even see me. You ever felt like that? I'm cast out of thy sight. You know, Jonah was in a situation where he couldn't help himself and nobody else could help him. God knows how to bring you and me to a position where we can't help ourselves. Nobody else can help us. Remember that show a few years ago where somebody would be asked a question they didn't know the answer to, and they said, well, you have some options. You can call a friend, or you can get some advice from over here. I'm telling you, Jonah couldn't call a friend. <laughs> he didn't have a cell phone that he could bring out and say, just a minute, I'm in the whale's belly. 911, emergency. He couldn't do that, could he? They wouldn't have answered because he didn't have any service down. He didn't even have a cell phone. He didn't have any way to help himself. What would you have thought of Jonah if he would have been down there in the whale's belly? You thought, okay, Jonah, you're in a pickle now, real pickle. Here's what you need to do, Jonah. Just believe in yourself. Just unleash your untapped human potential, and you've got to lift yourself by the bootstraps. Come on, Jonah, you can do it. You can reach for the stars. Do you think that would have helped him down there in the whale's belly? 
I'm telling you all the positive thinking tricks, all the psychological manipulations, none of it would have helped Jonah down there. He couldn't look within, he couldn't look around. The only place he could look was up. And he says, although I'm cast out of thy sight, yet once more I will look toward thy holy temple. I'm telling you, dear friends, this word yet is one of the great words of the Bible. Matthew 15, 27, the Syrophoenician woman, the Gentile woman, comes and applies to Jesus for mercy, but Jesus answers her not a word. Then she turns to the disciples and asks them for help. And they came to Jesus and said, Lord, send her away, for now she's crying after us. And Jesus told the woman, it is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to the dogs. You talk about a comment that put her right in her place. She wasn't worthy of the truth. She wasn't worthy of the Savior's help. She was an outsider, a stranger to the covenants of promise, a Gentile. He says, it is not fit to take the bread that belongs to the children and to let the dogs eat it. And she says, truth, Lord. I love her response. Yet, the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Don't you love the little word yet? You know, I almost think I could preach this morning. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, and there shall be no fruit in the vines, and the labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. It's a destitute and desolate condition that the prophet is describing. And this was a real prospect. He understood that when the Babylonians come in, this might very well happen. The economy will fail. Every staple will be lost. Everything that you think is necessary to sustain life will no longer be there. He says, yet... That's faith's regardless. Faith deals in reality, but yet faith, my friends, rises above reality, and it says yet. It's the word that says I'm not looking at circumstances, but I'm looking at God. My beloved triumphant faith rejoices in the Lord, even in the most dismal and bleak of times. Habakkuk's circumstances have not changed from the first chapter when he's tied in knots, when he's perplexed. From the second chapter, when he's waiting for God's answer and then trembling with fear at that answer, his circumstances have not changed at all, but the prophet himself has changed. Notice thirdly, faith's resolve. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. Notice those two little words, I will, repeated twice in this verse. That's the language of resolve. A resolution. You read language like this in the 138th Psalm. Listen to the first verse. I will praise thee with my whole heart. Now David has made up his mind that he's not going to stop worshiping God. I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods I will sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Or listen to him in the 145th Psalm, the first verse. I will extol thee, O my God, O King, and I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day I will bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Verse 5, I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works. I will, I will, I will. Have you ever said, I will? You know, in a marriage, you say, will you? I will. Will you? I will. It's a, a pledge. It's a resolution. 
It's a decision that you make. And here the prophet says, although my circumstances haven't changed yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. This is faith's resolve. You know, Habakkuk's name, we said in the first message in this mini-series, means the wrestler. But it also means the embracer. Now, we can see how the two terms combine. Because what does a wrestler do but embrace his enemy and try to wrestle him to the ground, you know? The wrestler or the embracer. But I suggest that Habakkuk has been wrestling. He's been grappling with these hard questions. But now he finally comes to the point that says, I'm going to be the embracer. And he throws his arms around the feet of the Lord God of his salvation. He embraces the Lord. He says, although the fig tree will not blossom and everything around me changes, my God won't change. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Faith's resolve. Faith, my beloved, deals in reality Faith sees that there is hope even in the most hopeless of situations. It has a yet, a regardless. And faith, my beloved, resolves to keep doing the right thing even though everything around us is changing. Interestingly, the word rejoice in verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. The Hebrew word translated rejoice means to leap and sing for joy. In a word, it's describing what we would call the emotion of jubilation jubilation. You see, the prophet is not merely resigned to the situation. He doesn't look at the coming economic collapse and say, well, you shouldn't cry over spilled milk. I'm just going to resign myself to say it is what it is. There's no resignation. There's not an attitude of just uh, let's deal with it here. That's not what faith says. Neither is his response a form of psychological detachment or escape. He doesn't say, trouble is coming, so I just won't think about that today. I'll think about that tomorrow. That's the Scarlett O'Hara approach to life. It's the ostrich approach, you know? Let's just pretend it's not there and bury our head in the sand. It's what many people do when they say, okay, let's escape for a while. Let's go to the mountains for a few days, or let's go on a cruise and just forget about all the troubles we have. It's what a lot of people do with the bottle or the pill cabinet. You know, they say, I just got to escape from the pressures of life. I've got to find some form of recreation or some form of diversion to escape from it. It's a psychological trick. You see, Habakkuk's dealing in reality. He says it's going to happen, and I know that it's just a matter of time, but he says when it happens, I'm not going to lose my sanity. Because my God has not changed, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. He doesn't respond with a form of stoic resolve. You know, the Stoics kept the stiff upper lip. It was a philosophical school that was popular back in Greek cultures. And the Stoics, you know, had the attitude of just pull yourself together, man. Or man up, you know. Put your shoulder to the wheel and your nose to the grindstone and your chin against the wind and you've got to survive. Habakkuk does not opt for a psychological trick. He doesn't adopt a survival mentality or a mere resignation to it is what it is kind of attitude. You know what he does? He has genuine jubilation. He's leaping and singing for joy. 
I will rejoice in the Lord. My beloved, real joy in the midst of life's tribulations and tragedies. Real joy is the spiritual ideal for the Christian. You say, well, Brother Mike, how? <laughs> I mean, I can't just pull myself up by the... I can't flip a switch and say, I'm going to be happy even though problems are around me. I'm just going to have joy. Notice the joy is in the Lord. It's not a joy in himself. It's not a joy in his fellow man. It's not a joy in his circumstances. It's a joy in God. I will rejoice in the Lord. And there's the key. That's the secret. My beloved, the character of God is a source of true joy for the child of God in this world. Your God never changes. Have you ever just stopped and reminded yourself who your God is? I think it's so helpful for us to just repeat the attributes of God in our minds, to preach the gospel to ourselves from time to time. Remind yourself that your God is the creator. He's the eternal God who existed before time, space, and matter. He's always been, he always will be. That means he's immutable, he doesn't change. He's the faithful God who's the true promise keeper. He never has broken his word. He never has said something and then later came back and said, well, as this happened, this eventuality took place that I hadn't foreseen and now I have to change the plan. God is unchangeable, he's faithful, he is all-powerful, He's sovereign. He reigns on the throne of the universe and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Our God's a God of loving kindness and tender mercies. He's a God of grace. He's the God of hope. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the God with whom nothing is impossible. Notice in this passage, Habakkuk says, I will rejoice in the Lord. The word Lord in my King James Bible is written in all capital letters, which signifies he's translated the Hebrew name Jehovah or Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H. It's I am that I am. That's the name of God. And it means, my friends, that God is all sufficient. You know, I love to meditate on the sufficiency of God. He's enough. He's everything that you need. You need food. I am the bread of life. Do you need light in your darkness? I am the light of the world. Do you need guidance? In, I am the good shepherd that guides his sheep. Do you need a friend? Jesus Christ is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. Whatever you need, whatever your situation demands, God is able to satisfy that need. He has a never-failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace. That is, his riches cannot be counted. They cannot be exhausted. They've not been depleted. He's not running short. There's no shortage, my beloved, in the mercy of God for poor sinners in this world. Isn't it wonderful to know that our God is all-sufficient? His grace is sufficient for you. It's enough for you. Your God is your portion. He's your light. He's your salvation. In fact, the prophet says, God is my song. That's in the word rejoice in verse 18, the jubilant song. The Lord is my strength. He's my song. He's my salvation. And he's my strength. Three S's. You talk about having triple A. Well, I'll tell you, I'd rather have triple S. God is my song. He's my salvation. And he's my strength.
Triple S can help you whenever you're stranded by the roadside. It can help you whatever your situation may be. Indeed, my friends, the character of God is a source of joy for the Christian. And then, even further, the saving grace of God. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy, he says it again, in the God of my salvation. Here's a source. Here's a reason for you and me to rejoice. His saving grace. And I want to say that's the ultimate incentive to joy. God's gifts of salvation in our lives. You know, God saves us every day, doesn't he, in many ways. God's deliverances are manifold in our lives. A lot of people, when they think of salvation, only think of the ultimate sense of being saved from hell. But you know, in the Bible, God's deliverance, his salvation is a very broad concept. God saves his people from many pitfalls and trials along the way. I've been delivered more than I can even count and express today. He's answered my prayers and delivered me from despair. He's delivered me from hopelessness, from discouragement. He's delivered me from temptation. He's delivered me from false ideas. God has worked in such a way in his providence and in his wisdom to save me time and time and time again. You know, when Peter was sinking in the water and he said, Lord, save me, I perish. Was he worried about going to hell when he cried out for salvation? No, he's worried about drowning and we need salvation. Has God ever saved you physically? from the physical dangers that are around us. I don't think any of us really know how many times God has intervened to save us from the many physical dangers. How many dangers lurked outside the window that you never knew about, but God knew about and he watched over you. How many dangers on the highways? How many diseases and physical ailments that you thought would be the end of you, yet God raised you up, he delivered you from it. My life is a testimony to the delivering mercy, the saving grace of God. And so when the prophet says, I'm going to rejoice, although everything around me fails, yet God is the same and his salvations in my life have been multiple. And I'm going to rejoice in that. You know, King Hezekiah's sickness is uh, recorded in Isaiah chapter 38. You talk about temporal or timely salvations, daily deliverances in this present world. You know, when primitive Baptists talk about time salvation, they're not talking about saving minutes on the clock. <laughs> you know, somebody says, I've got a time-saving device. That's not what we mean by time salvation or temporal salvation. What we're saying when we talk about temporal salvation is when you study the subject of salvation in the Bible, you've got to understand it's not always talking about salvation that has an eternal consequence. Sometimes it's talking about salvations that have to do with this life, okay, in time. For instance, when it says, He hath delivered me from so great a death, he doth deliver, and in whom we trust he shall yet deliver. You see salvation in three time zones in 2 Corinthians 1.10. God saves us every day in many ways. And here's King Hezekiah in Isaiah 38. And God has sent the prophet to him and said, Set your house in order, Hezekiah, for thou shalt die and not live. And Hezekiah, when he got that news, do you know what he did? He turned his face to the wall and began to weep. I mean, he's in the zenith of his life. He's in the prime of his life, and God said, you're about to die. It was news to him. It surprised him. It shocked him, and he wasn't ready. And he begins to weep about it, and he cries out to God that he would spare his life. And God sent the prophet back to him, Isaiah the prophet, with this message, I've heard your prayer, and I will add 15 years to your life. 
God gave him a stay of execution. <laughs> he added 15 years to his life. Isaiah 38 describes his response. Listen to this. Isaiah 38, verse 9. The writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and he was recovered from his sickness. I said, in the cutting off of my days, I shall go to the gates of the grave. I'm deprived of the residue of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, even the Lord, in the land of the living. I shall behold man no more in this world. Mine age is departed and removed from me. He said, this is what I said when I turned my face to the wall and wept. And then he said, I reckoned till morning. I thought about it, prayed, struggled over it all night. He said, I mourned as a dove. Mine eyes failed with looking upward. Oh, Lord, I'm oppressed. Undertake for me. And then he says, here's my resolve. I'm going to go softly all my years in the bitterness of my soul. I'm going to live out the rest of my days tiptoeing through the tulips, going softly. I'm going to make sure I don't do anything to, you know, to make the Lord hasten my demise. But then notice this, verse 17. Behold, for peace I had great bitterness. That was my situation. Instead of having peace in my heart, he said, I was torn up on the inside. But thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption. For thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. For the grave cannot praise thee. Death cannot celebrate thee. They that go down into the pit cannot hope for thy truth. The living, the living, he shall praise thee as I do this day. Then he said, the Lord was ready to save me. I like that thought. God wasn't delayed. God was on time. He was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. For the rest of my life, I'm going to praise. Sounds like he's joyful. This man rejoiced in the God of his salvation. For Isaiah had said, let them take a lump of figs and lay it for a plaster upon the boil, and he shall recover and Hezekiah said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? That's his experience. That's his poetic response in Isaiah 38 to how God delivered him. But you know, dear friends, the greatest salvation of all are not the salvations from sickness, from dying, from danger, from confusion that we experience in our daily lives. The greatest deliverance of all is that in the ultimate sense, God picking me up from the burning fires of eternal judgment and rescuing me and making me as a prince to inhabit thrones of glory, the greatest salvation that I've ever had in my life is that the Lord has forgiven my sins and made me a child of the King. I'm telling you, dear friends, that that's the greatest salvation and that's reason to rejoice. Even though everything around you is failing and faltering, yet that will never change. No wonder when those Disciples came back from a successful preaching trip and said, Lord, even the spirits were subject to us through thy name. Jesus said, in this rejoice not, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Notice finally faith's results. Verse 19. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like hinds feet, a gazelle. Have you ever seen these gazelles or deer or mountain goats? that are popular in the eastern part of the world, you know, I mean, they are fleet of foot. You ever watch some of these nature shows that show, you know, these antelope or gazelles? There's a question as to what the hind referred to particularly, but these deer in the mountains, we're not talking about mule deer and 
the western part of America or white-tailed deer in the southeast. We're talking about these mountain deer, these mountain goats or gazelles that are so fast and they can leap from rock to rock and they can be at the top of the mountain in just a matter of moments. You know, they're so fast, they're so fleet of foot, they're so sure-footed. He says, he will make my feet like hinds feet. Here's the prophet whose going has been stayed and slow, like he had a pound of mud caked to each heel. You know, when I lived in West Texas, we had uh, cleachy. Maybe you have it here, cleachy. You know, you could walk in a, a good rain come through and you start walking down the dirt road and before you know it, your shoes were about, you know, suddenly I went from five foot seven and a half inches to about six one, you know, whenever I had cleachy because it's like a cement. You try to get it off, you try to shake it off, and you'll dislocate a knee trying to, you know, shake that stuff off, and you have to chisel it off almost. It's thick, it's sticky, it just clings to you. Have you ever walked with a pound of mud caked to your heels, and you realize that you can't go very fast? It's hard to lift your legs. A lot of us live our lives each day like that, don't we? The hymn writer put it like this, why is my going so staid and slow? Why do the clouds hang low? You know, a lot of us live like Eeyore. Well, nothing ever goes right. All I have are problems. And uh, I don't think there's any hope for the future. And we're just trudging our way through life, plodding through life. I'll tell you my beloved faith, when it rejoices in God, has this result. Suddenly, you're spiritually strong. The Lord God is my strength. Suddenly, you're spiritually agile. You're not heavy-footed and heavy-hearted anymore, but your daily gait now is characterized by abounding gracefulness, an elastic ease, and a swift-footed cheerfulness and buoyancy through life, skipping along the mountains and the hills like hind's feet, spiritual agility. You can move with light-heartedness, and then you're spiritually stable. This is faith's result. And he will make me to walk upon mine high places. We sing a song sometimes, lift me up above the shadows. I want to tell you, my friends, there's a higher plane on which you could live and I could live than we do. We don't have to live in the lowlands of depression. We don't have to live in the doldrums of self-doubt and fear and negativity all the time i'm telling you dear friends the lord's word to you and me is come up hither come up higher or if you please arise my love and come away with me god is able to lift you and me up and make us stable where we can walk on the high places you know the kingdom of god the church is depicted as in the top of the mountains isaiah 2 2 he says the kingdom of god shall be in the top of the mountains and all nations shall flow into it and when you come to church, you know, it's a time when you're in an elevated frame of mind, or it should be. It's an opportunity for us to look down on the rest of the world and to say, it's all okay because I'm closer to God up here. The view is more lovely from up here than when I'm down there in the middle of the fray. I guess what we could say in conclusion is Habakkuk's triumphant close to this prophecy Summed up in Isaiah 40, 31, they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
that's available to you and me to live like that. So if you've ever identified with Habakkuk, Lord, why? How long? Why doesn't anything work out? I pray that by the time that your internal troubles and trials have gone through the testing, they've been tried. I pray they'll come through triumphant saying, whatever happens, yet my God's the same and I'll still rejoice in him. Oh my God.